Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I came across this past week the results of a computerized survey. And the results of this computerized survey talked about the perfect pastor, which brought, my, brought, brought, brought attention to my ears. Here's the perfect pastor according to the computerized results. Are you ready? He preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sin but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he's also the custodian. He makes $60 a week, wears nice clothes, buys good books, and drives a nice car and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. He's wonderfully gentle and perfectly handsome. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spend most of his time with senior adults. He makes 15 calls a day on church families, shut-ins, hospitalized, while evangelizing the lost. He's always in the office when you need him. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this profile to six other churches that would like a new pastor. Bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one year, you will receive 1,643 pastors. (laughs) Several of them together should be perfect. Warning, keep this letter going. One church broke the chain and got their old pastor back in three months. (laughs) Hopefully you know by now I'm not your perfect pastor. But what happens when one person ends up doing all the work, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a business, whether it's in an organization. What happens when just one person does everything? What happens to that person? You know what happens to that person. They either get burnt out or they get frustrated. Now, have you ever heard of the 80-20 principle? Anybody? Here's the 80-20 principle. And it's common in a lot of churches. It's common in a lot of organizations. 80% of the work, 80% of the ministry is usually done by 20% of the people. Now, in some churches, it can be even greater. It could be 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. And so, when you think about leadership, a church rises and falls on leadership. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look at our church, we look at our community, we look at all the things that are going on in our lives, and, and we have to ask the question, there's so many ministry opportunities There's so many people that need to be reached. There's so many people that are hurting. There's so many people that need ministered to. How is everybody going to get ministered to? How are all the needs going to be met? How are we going to, to do this? And have you ever thought about how we as a church raise up new leadership? Where are our future elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, children's leaders, dare I say women's leaders, and non-existent men's ministry leaders? Where... Where are all these people going to come from? Now, when we think of leadership, when I use the word leadership, don't get scared, because oftentimes when church people think of leadership, they automatically tune me off and say, he's not talking about me. He's talking about a pastor. He's talking about an elder. He's talking about a deacon. He's talking about a person in an official role of leadership. And let me just say this. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. When I say leadership... I'm talking about people in the pew or in the chair, just like you, that God may be calling to do something for Christ, to minister for Christ, to be a leader. And I will say that um, in our church right now, we do have a, a weakness in leadership right now. There's a lot of ministry opportunities, but then there's just a lot of people that aren't stepping up to the plate to take on those ministry opportunities. And so this sermon this morning is not meant to minister guilt to you, okay? So don't feel like I'm beating you over the head and I'm ministering guilt. I'm not trying to say, everybody go sign up to work in the nursery. I know Marcy would love that, but that's not what I'm calling you to do. What I'm wanting us to do here is I'm wanting us to look at what the Bible says about leadership. What does the Bible say about leadership and how does, how do you, how does the church raise up leadership? How do you reproduce leaders? How do you equip leaders? How is leadership developed in a church? Now, the the health of our church, the future of our church is all dependent upon the leadership of our church. Now, today is the last day. Actually, tomorrow is the real last day of our 50-day spiritual journey. We've been going for 50 days through the scriptures, 
daily devotional looking at what God has to say about our identity, what God has to say about obedience, and we've been looking specifically over the past few weeks of the value of a disciple-making small group. And if you just remember, there's four components. We've been looking at these over the past few weeks. First of all, we want to create an environment where there's scripture saturation. Now, what is scripture saturation? We want an environment where everyone that's connected to, to, to Emmanuel Baptist Church is growing in the scriptures, learning the word of God, obeying the word of God, not just information, but transformation. We want both obedience and theology. We want both information and transformation. Secondly, we also want an environment, a context where people can practice the one another's, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another. Um, pray for one another, confess sins to one another, bear the burdens of one another. We want a context where that life on life can be happening in an ongoing fashion where we can do life together as a church. And thirdly, we talked about this last week, we also want a context where you can live as a missionary where you can be evangelistic, where you, can, where you can begin to pray for lost people and begin to see yourself as a missionary in your context to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. So three foundations, scripture saturation, the one another's, and missional living. And now we come to the fourth foundation of a disciple-making small group. And it's crucial to the health of a church. And here's what it is. Being conformed to the image of Christ means that we seek to equip and reproduce leaders. We seek to equip and reproduce leaders. We want Emmanuel Baptist Church to be a greenhouse. A greenhouse. What's a greenhouse? A greenhouse is where things what? Grow. Okay, we don't want it to be stagnant. We don't want it to be septic. We want a greenhouse where leaders are being birthed, leaders are being equipped, leaders are being sent out. We have future elders, we have future deacons, we have future church planners, we have future missionaries, we have future ministry leaders, where God is birthing leaders in our midst. And we don't want to centralize leadership into just one person. Lord, save the day when, when the pastor does everything. So a lot of churches centralize leadership into a small group of people. What I want to see in Emmanuel is not just leadership into a small group of people. I want to see a, a, a whole host of leaders that are stepping up to the plate. And notice that, that I'm using the word leaders. A lot of times in churches we talk about workers. We need workers. We need workers in this. We need workers in that. We need workers, workers. Do you guys get excited about being a worker? Or do you get more excited about being a leader? Leadership just means you have influence. It doesn't have to be in an official position. It just means that you have influence over people and you're making a difference. Now think about this for a moment. If our envision is truly to see a gospel-centered culture where every single person connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church is being conformed to the image of Christ through an intentional disciple-making process, and we desire to see these disciple-making small groups be birthed and, and expanded throughout our church, and if we see more ministries uh, come, up, uh, come up from the scene where we have more children's ministries and more youth ministries and more adults' ministries, we're going to need more ministry leaders. And so the health of a church rises and falls on leadership. So I want us to dive into the scriptures this morning, and I want us to see how this works itself out, okay? A lot of times when we look at the scriptures, we, we read it, but we don't think about leadership development. And I very, very rarely have preached upon leadership development, but what I'm doing this morning is to, is to lay a biblical foundation to say that leadership, reproducing and equipping leaders is a biblical mandate. So let's first of all look at the principle. What's the principle of leadership development? And that actually should be principal, not principal. Principal is the, uh, your pal at the, it's the head of your school. That's a principal. Principal. Okay, here it could, it could be said like this. Disciples are learners who embrace the value of being equipped to lead and influence others. Disciples are learners who embrace the value of being equipped to lead and influence others. Now, I want you to notice the key word there is equipped. Why are we using the word Equipped. Well, it's a biblical word. So let's look in Luke chapter 6. Hopefully you've got your Bible open there. Luke chapter 6, 39 through 40. This is in the midst of Jesus' teaching on a lot of different things, but he, he gets this little statement here that really teaches us a lot about what it means to be an effective disciple, what it means to be an equipped disciple. Luke chapter 6, 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And here's the key. A disciple is not above his teacher, 
But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You see what Jesus is saying there? Everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now notice what the goal is. It's to be like Jesus. Now doesn't that sound like what we've been talking about the past 50 days? Identity. We want to look more and more like Jesus. We want to be transformed to look more like Jesus. And Jesus says right here, the way that you begin to look more like him is that you become fully trained. Fully trained or equipped to be fully trained to look like Jesus. Now, in the ancient context, there were rabbis. And these rabbis would travel around the countryside and, and disciples would attach themselves to a rabbi. And they would learn from the rabbi. And they would live with the rabbi. And they would eat with the rabbi. And they'd observe the life of the rabbi. And they'd try to imitate the rabbi. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came. He called 12 disciples to himself. They ate with him. They saw him in action. They did ministry with him. They lived with him for three years. None of the disciples ever went to seminary, okay? But think about it. They spent three years with Jesus himself being taught. And as a matter of fact, here's the interesting thing that happened. Jesus equipped and trained these disciples to go out and change the world. And that's what they did. If you go back and you remember our our sermon series on Acts, think about how the early apostles just changed the world. If you think about in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we see this amazing statement about Peter and John. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. Now, Peter and John hadn't gone to seminary. Peter and John hadn't gone to Pharisee school. They hadn't gone to Bible college. They were uneducated men. But what happened? They, were, they had power in what they were saying because the Scripture says they had been with Jesus. Give me a person who's been with Jesus versus a person that's graduated from seminary. And I will show you someone that's on fire for Christ. I've known a lot of people have gone through seminary and have lost their passion for Jesus because it's all intellectual information. What's the key here? Being with Jesus. When we abide with Christ, when we spend time with Christ, when we become equipped through the scriptures, what happens? We begin to be like our teacher. We begin to be like our rabbi. We begin to be like Jesus when we are fully trained. Now, that word fully trained that Jesus uses there is an interesting word. In the original language, it means strengthened, established, matured, completed. It's an interesting word that shows up in other places in the Bible. So Jesus says, when you're fully trained, when you're matured, when you're complete, you will look like your teacher. You will look like your master. Where else do we find this word fully trained in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Ephesians 4. You don't need to turn there. I think it'll be on your screen. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. We see the same exact Greek word that Jesus uses here in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Paul writes, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip, there's the Greek word, to equip, to fully train the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, fully trained, equipped. One of my main jobs as your pastor is to equip you, to train you, to teach you, to mentor you, to do the works of ministry. Now, put that scripture back up there again, Mickey, just for one moment. I want you to see what it does not say. Okay, it does not say that the pastor does all the work of ministry, does it? Does it say the pastor does all the work of ministry? No, it says my job is to equip the saints. Who are the saints? You guys. What am I to equip you to do? The work of ministry. So you all are to be equipped, fully trained to do the work of ministry. What's the best context to do this? Can I mentor and equip every single one of you? No, it's just humanly impossible. But if you're connected to a disciple-making small group, guess what? You can have a leader. You can have a person that can help train, can help equip. There's the, the power of the group. The group can help equip and train, and new leaders can be birthed through a disciple-making small group. And what's the end result that Paul says? When the saints are equipped to do the work of ministry, what happens to the church? The church is built up. The church grows. The church is strengthened. The church is powerful because we have people who are equipped to do the work of ministry. So one of my goals as pastor is to equip you. 
Now, it doesn't mean that I don't do anything. I sit back and say, okay, I get a free pass. Now I can twiddle my thumbs. I don't have to do anything. No, I equip. Leaders equip. Pastors, teachers, shepherds, elders, others, we equip others to do the work of ministry. Now, yes, we do the work of ministry, but our job is an equipping ministry. Jesus says, when you're fully trained, you will be like your teacher. The, pa- the job of a pastor is to fully train the saints so that they can be like their master and do the works of ministry. Now, where else does this word fully trained or word equip show up? Well, it shows up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says this, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Supply. That's the same Greek word. Paul says, when I come to you, I want to supply what's lacking. I want to equip. I want to train. I want to encourage. I want to mentor. You're you're lacking in something. So you need to be equipped. You need to be trained. And so Paul says, I want to come and I want to supply that. And so we want to see a church where people are equipped to reproduce leaders and on and on and on. And so what context is a good context to do that? Well, there's a lot of context. There's one-on-one mentoring. There's a lot of one-on-one mentoring that goes on in our church. There's small group mentoring, maybe one to three. But for the most people to be connected, most people in the church to be connected, it's going to be through a disciple-making small group where you're going to be equipped, you're going to be challenged to grow in your faith. And that's what I envision. I envision a day when we have a church full of equipped disciples. Wouldn't that be awesome? To have an, a, a cadre, a, an army, if you will, of equipped disciples that are doing the work of ministry so that there's no needs in our church. Wouldn't there be an awesome day when we, when we sit back and as pastoral staff, we say, you know what, in staff meeting, there's no needs in our church because all the needs are being met by the saints that are equipped to do works of ministry. Now, I know that will never happen because we live in a fallen world, but it sure would be cool to say that the needs are being met. Now, here's another one, too. First Peter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That word restore there, God will come restore, is the same word that Jesus uses for fully trained, the same word that Paul used for supply, the same word used for equip, that God will equip us, God will restore us, God will fully train us. So, the biblical principle is this. We need to see the value of being equipped. God calls us to be equipped to be like Jesus. But here's the process. Okay, what is the process? Secondly, the process. It could be said like this. Disciples are learners who also embrace the value of reproducing themselves in other disciples. Okay, it's one thing to be equipped yourself. That's just halfway. You're equipped yourself so you can in turn reproduce yourself and others. It's not just a me-centered, I'm going to get this information, I'm going to get this training, I'm going to get this equipping so that I can be equipped. No, the whole purpose of it is so you can turn around and equip and train and encourage and mentor and invest in others to reproduce yourself in other believers. So, where do we see this process of reproducing ourselves in other leaders? Turn to 2 Timothy, if you will, this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 very powerful passage of scripture that speaks about the process okay the biblical principle we need to be fully trained but how does this process happen what's the process second timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 paul writes this to timothy you then my child be strengthened by the grace that it's in christ jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, the biblical process is to entrust other men, other people, and carry the process on and on and to be equipping and to be doing all this stuff. But notice how Paul couches it. He doesn't start with the command. What have we been looking at all over these past 50 days? What comes before doing? Being. What comes before obedience? Identity. And notice what Paul does here. Before he tells Timothy what to do, he roots it in his identity. Notice what he does in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This whole process of disciple-making, the whole process of leadership development, the whole process of mentoring, it has to come from grace. 
It has to come from the grace that is God supplies in the gospel to be strengthened by the grace. It comes from my identity and who we are as a child of God. We can't even begin to do this if we don't have the grace of Christ in our lives. And so Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, your identity is one of a child of God. You have grace. Now go reproduce yourself. Now notice here that Timothy's not just teaching people for information, but he's teaching them so they can pass them along to others. There's four generations here. I want you to see four generations in verse 2 of disciple-making. Who's the first generation? Who's writing this book? Paul. Paul's generation number one. Who's he writing to? Timothy. Timothy's generation number two. So Paul to Timothy. What is Timothy to do? He's to entrust who? Faithful men, faithful people, not just necessarily men, but faithful people. That's the third generation. To do what? Who will be able to teach others. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to others, others to others, others to others, others to others. How many of you are a Christian today because somebody shared the gospel with you? Hopefully almost all of you. God shared, or or, or God's word was shared with you because somebody invested in you, told you. And somebody told them. And somebody told them, and you can probably trace it all the way back. It'd be interesting to trace back your, your, your Christian heritage to find out who told the person that 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 told you. And how are you going to tell the person that's going to tell the person that's going to tell? And this keeps on reproducing itself, this whole idea. And notice what Paul tells Timothy to do. Entrust. Entrust. It's an interesting word. It's a very rare word in the Greek language. It means to give somebody food. It means to feed. Feed these people so that they can feed others, so that they can feed others. It's a feeding ministry, if you will. Giving them the meat, the food of God's word, so that they in turn can reproduce leaders. Okay. This morning, I want to invite someone up to the stage to to give a little bit of a testimony of how this process has happened in his life. And so, Neil, are you out there? Neil Pascoe, um, has been part of our church for the past few years, and about two and a half years ago, we got to baptize him, and um, Neil's got a great testimony of how God has been using him to be equipped as a leader. And he's, he's a little nervous this morning, so let's pray for Neil. He'll, he'll do fine. So, Neil, I'm going to give you a microphone here. And Neil, I know a lot of people know who you are, but maybe just share a little bit about your salvation experience and how God saved you. Back in 2008, we moved up here from Colorado Springs to start working for the Department of Corrections. Um, when we moved into a house, Vern and Gay Borth were our neighbors, and they invited us to church. They shared the good news about Jesus with us and uh, started coming here. I, I knew about God at that time, but never really trusted in Jesus as my Savior. Coming to church, hearing the conviction of the Lord, and uh, it was one day before we took the Lord's Supper. Uh, we were in prayer, and I, I was just praying, and I just asked Jesus to be my Savior and to trust in Him as my Lord and Savior and um, ask for forgiveness of my sins and have faith in Him. And I felt Him reach down and touch me and say, just come with me and change, change my life. Amen. Amen. And Neil, um, after that experience, you kind of had a desire to be mentored and, and desire to grow in your faith. Kind of tell me how that, that happened and why, why you, why you want to go down that path. After, after that, um, I felt like my life had changed. I, I wasn't me anymore. I was a new person, and I didn't know how to live my life, hearing, hearing how we're supposed to live our lives as Christians and reading the Bible. I didn't, I didn't know myself anymore, so I came to pastor sean and i asked him uh, to come alongside me and kind of show me how i was to live my life as a christian so neil and i have been meeting for two years now every monday for about an hour and we go through the scriptures and and um he's been learning a lot and i think we've gone through job and first corinthians and timothy and now we're going through luke and so um each week we meet and and over the the course of the of the couple years i noticed that there was some leadership in neil and so um, I asked Neil to take a risk. I said, Neil, how would you like to be one of our next growth group leaders? And um, kind of throw him into the, to the fire there. And so Neil is now actually one of our growth group leaders. Kind of tell about your experience there and how, how you're feeling with that and, and things. Um, when, when Pastor Sean asked me to, to lead a growth group, uh, 
I, I was really nervous. Uh, I felt, you know, I'm a new Christian. I'm still learning. Um, there are other Christians in class that, are, that have been around lo way longer than me and more seasoned. And we prayed about it. My wife and I prayed about it. And uh, thank, thankful that Mickey Doves is allowing me to share in his class with him. We're teaching together. And, and I've, just, I've learned more from being a teacher than I have sitting under a class. And uh, I just, I don't know, I feel God's moved in me and I just want to keep moving it forward. I, have, I do have leadership skills and just want to continue to pass it forward. Amen. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for coming up here. I know universe. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> so the lesson learned is don't be mentored by Pastor Sean. He'll ask you to do something. But if you noticed, we stuck Neil into a class where Mickey, one of our elders, is teaching. They're co-teaching. And so Neil gets to observe Mickey, and Mickey gets to pour into Neil, and eventually Neil will be able to go on himself, and hopefully we'll have more and more leaders emerge from our church because of this whole leadership transfer of what we're talking about here in the Scripture. So, so thanks again, um, Neil, for, for sharing that. So we've seen the biblical principle. We are to be fully trained. The, the process is we're to be reproducing ourselves through, through many different generations to, to train and to equip. But let's see this pattern. Do we see a pattern in the Bible, the pattern of this happening? I'm going to give you two examples, actually three examples. I'm going to give you one Old Testament example and two New Testament examples. Think about Moses and Joshua for a moment. Turn with me in your Old Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. I want to show you some interesting, just an interesting picture of mentoring. Interesting picture of coming alongside and mentoring and preparing a person for leadership. And maybe in your life, you're like a Joshua and you've had a Moses come to you and help you. Or maybe you're like a Paul and you've had a Timothy. Or maybe you are a, a Joshua and you need to, to pass it on to someone even, even down the line. But let's see how Moses and Joshua interacted and some, some principles of leadership we can see from this mentoring relationship. Turn to Exodus 24. Let's look at verses 12 through 18. This is really the first time we, we, we find out who Joshua is in relationship to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us, and we will return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Now, Moses had the privilege of going up on the mountain, being in the presence of God. But who did he take with him? Joshua. He could have said, Joshua, you stay down there, but he invited Joshua. Now, I'm not sure, the Bible doesn't say if Joshua got to go and experience all the things that Moses did, but Joshua was given a little baby step to go see how Moses worshipped. He was taken up on the mountain with Moses as his assistant. This is the beginning of this mentoring. Okay, let's continue to see it, how we can model worshipping. Let's look at Exodus 33, 11. Exodus 33, 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Okay, Moses is in there talking with God face to face. Moses is in there having his prayer time. And where's Joshua? Joshua's right outside the tent getting to observe the prayer life of Moses. Another baby step where Moses is inviting Joshua into this mentoring relationship. Joshua, come see how I worship. Joshua, come see how I pray. How is the best context for you to learn how to pray? In a disciple-making small group, where you can hear other people pray. What's the best context for you to learn how to worship? In a corporate worship service, where you can be mentored and taught how to pray and how to worship. Okay, let's go one other place. Let's turn to Numbers. Numbers 27. 
18 through 23. This is where it becomes official. Up to this point, uh, Moses has been kind of grooming Joshua. He's been mentoring Joshua. He's been discipling Joshua. But there comes a point where there's a leadership transfer, and it's made public so that the whole congregation knows what's happening. So Numbers 27, 18 through 23. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. And his word they shall go out and his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. This is the public commissioning of Joshua. Now, Moses could have gone to Joshua and said, hey, buddy, you're going to be the next leader. And that would have been cool. But what does Moses do? He gathers the entire nation and brings Joshua before the entire nation and says, I'm laying my hands on this dude. He's your next leader. I was your leader. I've mentored him. Now I'm transferring leadership to Joshua because I'm going to die. I'm not going to enter the promised land. Joshua's going to have to lead you in. Okay, let's go to one other place. Let's go to Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8. Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8. I know we haven't been in our Old Testament in a while, so it's good to be going to those first five books. Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8. This is where mentoring helps, where Moses reminds Joshua of what he's going to face. Deuteronomy 31, 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, if you've read the first chapter of Joshua, what is the first chapter of Joshua? Four times Joshua says, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not fear. And so Moses is even preparing Joshua at this point, saying there's going to be spiritual warfare. You're going to have to lead the people in. You're going to get discouraged. But your hope is in the Lord. So mentoring leaders, is you help them understand worship. You help them understand prayer. You set them apart for ministry. You help them understand the obstacles that they're going to face. And then let's just see how Deuteronomy ends. Turn to chapter 34, verse 9. Because Deuteronomy, and then you flip the page to Joshua, you, you find the two books kind of fly together there. Okay, so Deuteronomy 34.9. Think about Moses had been their leader for a long time. And Moses had died. And now Joshua, this young guy who's kind of scared, is going to have to lead the people. So look at Deuteronomy 34.9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded. And there was not risen a prophet since Israel, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And Joshua's probably thinking, great, I have to follow this guy who parted the Red Sea, who struck the rock. Moses was our man. And I have to lead this complaining group of Israelites across the Jordan River to go in to attack these cities? Have I been prepared? Go to chapter 1 of Joshua. Just turn one page. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan and you and all this people into the land that I'm giving you and to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. It's interesting. At the beginning of Joshua, he's called Moses' assistant. At the end of Joshua, he's called the servant of the Lord. Now here's a big thing that happens if you know your Old Testament history. What's the next book after Joshua? Judges. You know what Judges is? It's the most rated R, most, most graphic, most terrible days in the life of Israel. It's the worst and the worst of Israel. The Bible says there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There arose a new generation that did not know Moses or Joshua. Now here's the issue. 
Moses passed on leadership to Joshua. Do we find anywhere in the book of Joshua where he passed on leadership to someone else? If there's one weakness of Joshua, he did not pass on leadership, and the nation paid dearly for it. So here's the issue. Sometimes that leadership transfer can stop and get sidetracked and not be passed on to the next generation. And it's catastrophic for a church. And so what we need to be thinking about is reproducing leaders who reproduce leaders who reproduce leaders who reproduce leaders who reproduce leaders and on and on and on. And you see that in Joshua and Moses, but then Joshua breaks the chain. And so God has to raise up these judges that, are, that aren't that good. And, and then eventually, it, things don't really even get good until King David comes on the scene. All right? Now, let's look at the New Testament. Let's look at Barnabas and Paul. You thought I was going to say Paul and Timothy. We already looked at that. Let's look at Barnabas and Paul. Turn to Acts. It's good to go back to Acts once in a while, even though we were there for a long time. Actually, it's going to be on your screen, so don't turn there, unless you want to. I forgot. Acts 4.36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Okay, so Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. We know that's who Barnabas is. He's an encouraging man. But what happens? Do you remember the story of Paul? Paul was a murderer. Paul was violently persecuting the Christians. And then God gets a hold of him on the road to Damascus and totally changes his life forever. He becomes a Christian. And then he goes back to the people he was persecuting. What would be the first thing you think of? I don't trust this guy. Can we really trust this guy or his intentions? What are his motives? Did he really get saved? Is he really trustworthy? What if he's just coming in as a wolf in sheep's clothing? What, what are we going to do with this Paul guy? Well, look what Barnabas does in Acts 9, 26 and 27. It'll be on your screen. And when he had come to Jerusalem, that's, that's Paul. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they, they did not believe that he was a disciple. You, you, you're kidding me. This guy's not saved. This guy's not a disciple. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a persecutor of disciples. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now here's the issue with mentoring. Sometimes we need to take a risk on people that don't look like in our eyes they're worthy of taking a risk upon. You understand what I'm saying? In everybody's eyes, Saul was a risk. Why in the world, Barnabas, would you take a risk on this guy? But you realize that, think about how things would have been different if Barnabas had not mentored Paul. Now think about who in our church right now we would look around and say, that person is the most unlikely candidate to be a leader. I'm never going to mentor them. I'm never going to invest in them. That person doesn't fit the profile, whatever the profile is. There may be many in our church right now who you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm probably the most unlikely candidate of being a leader. But who in this church is willing to take a risk on people to mentor them, to prepare them. Because God may be, God may be working in people's hearts right now to be leaders, but they just need somebody that's more mature to come alongside them and say, you know what, I see something in you. I want to come alongside you. I want to mentor you. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. And you may not look the part. You may be ragged and rough, and you, you may not look like anything that, that would be the profile. But God has laid upon my heart to come and mentor you and encourage you. Now, I want us to look at one other place in the New Testament where we see this. This is not necessarily an example of a person to a person. We saw, go to, go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. It's a little book in between 2 Timothy and Philemon. So kind of go towards 1 and 2 Corinthians and kind of go that way. And then if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Go back the other way. Um, Moses to Joshua. Okay, person to person. Barnabas to Paul. And you notice Paul went to Timothy. But here we see it even expanded into the life of the church. Not just person to person, but group to group. Titus 2, 1 through 6. Titus is a pastor that's from Crete that Paul sent there to appoint elders and to plant a church and to to basically get things in order. And so Paul is writing to Titus, this young pastor, and telling him how to to organize things in the life of the church. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, pastor... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, 
not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Okay, what is Paul doing here? He's talking to older men. Older men, you have a responsibility to be an example to younger men. Older women, you have a responsibility to be an example and train younger women. Young men, look to the old, older men. Young women, look to the older women. It's called intergenerational mentoring. Intergenerational mentoring. Think about what would happen if we had intergenerational disciple-making small groups where older, wiser Christians could come alongside and mentor younger, more immature Christians. Think about this for a moment. If you are an older, wiser Christian, and I don't necessarily mean by the color of your hair, but it could be, who in your life right now are you mentoring that's a younger, more inexperienced Christian? And younger, inexperienced Christian, who are you looking to in our church that can come alongside you and mentor you? Intergenerational mentoring is so crucial. I can't tell you how many people, young people I come across, that, and I'll just be real blunt, can I be real blunt this morning? A lot of young people are just clueless on how to live life. Okay? They're clueless when it comes to finances, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to um, prayer, when it comes to a lot of things. And it's not, it's, not a, it's not a slam against young people. It's just you haven't had good models. Where else are you going to get the modeling? Where else are you going to get the encouragement unless there's intergenerational mentoring? And a disciple-making small group could be a great context where future elders and future deacons and future missionaries and future church planners and future ministry leaders can all be equipped to do this. So who in your life right now, older Christian, older, wiser Christian, who in your life right now or who in this church can you be a mentor to? Have you asked and started praying, God, open my eyes to people in this church that may look young and experienced, and those young and inexperienced people may just be waiting for someone to come talk to them. Younger person, take a risk and go up and find an older person and say, would you mentor me? Would you mentor me? Would you encourage me? So think about the maximum impact of a disciple-making small group on how it can impact you personally in this journey to look more like Jesus. Where else? Now, now I'm not just putting all of our bags and eggs in a disciple-making small group context, okay? I know there's more to church life than that, but that's kind of where we're focusing on. But think about the four things. Number one, where is the best context for you to have scripture saturation where you can learn the word, you can obey the word, you can have people around you to, to encourage you in teaching and training the word of God, scripture saturation. Where's the best context for you to practice the one another's where you can love one another, where you can serve one another, where you can pray for one another, where you can bear the burdens of one another, where you can encourage one another, where you can forgive one another, where you can confess sins to one another. Where's the best context for that to happen? Number three, where's the best context for you to live as missionaries where you as a group can, can become missional, where you can do evangelism and you can invite lost people and you can you can pray for lost people number four what's the best context for you to be equipped to reproduce as a leader now there's a lot of ways this can happen but a disciple making small group is a great incubator it's a great greenhouse for this to happen to have a holistic integration of what what did we talk about a, a few months ago head heart and hands that's what we want a holistic integration of head heart and hands now i want to remind you of our key foundational verses that we've looked at over the past 50 days. All this talk means nothing if it doesn't lead to what God's intended desire is for us. And there were two passages of Scripture that we started this journey on that I want us to end this journey on because these are promises from God in our lives. The first is Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's God's plan for us from the very beginning of time? That we would look more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this is from the Lord... For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So being transformed. And so that's, that's what the whole goal of this whole issue is. We want all of us to be looking more and more like Jesus, to be conformed to look more and more like Jesus, that you look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday, than you did a year ago, that tomorrow you'll be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. Now, tonight, I have called us here for a time of testimony. 
And you may be a little scared now. What's going to happen tonight? I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. Well, to be honest with you, I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. This is where as a pastor, I'm like, I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit shows up and you show up and have something to say. But what I want you to do is I want you to come tonight ready to share what God has done in your heart. And don't think it has to be this great, like, earth-shattering, big thing. It could just be a little thing that God has shown you. But I think it's important. This is one of the few times in the life of our church where we've gathered together just to, to speak about what God has been telling us. And I believe God speaks to the body through the church. And so here's what I'm thinking. What has God taught you over the past 50 days? How, how have your toes been stepped on? What commitments are you going to be making? Where has God grown you? What do you think about the value of a disciple-making small group? What do you sense God is doing about our future? This is, this is your opportunity to come tonight and express your heart's desire. Now, I pray that you come with some scripture. And you've come with prayer. It's not just, I'm coming because I, I need something to say. I, thought, I hope you've come with prayer in your heart, thinking, you know, over 50 years I've processed, 50 years, over 50 years I've processed, 50 days I've processed what God is doing in my heart. And maybe some of you, you don't really know how to articulate that. Like, I know something's happened to me, but I don't know how to tell it. Well, just come tonight and let's just pray. And, 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 and I hope it's not one of those events where we sit here and, the, and we hear the, the crickets chirping because nobody has anything to say. I'm not going to preach twice. So um, I know the praise team is going to lead us in a few songs. And, and I just want to, I want to hear from you. If for anything else, you hear from me all the time. I want to hear from you as far as what is God birthing in your heart? What is God doing? And I think it's beneficial that the body hears from that. So come tonight at 630 to express what the Holy Spirit has been doing in your life. Now remember earlier when I said that Jesus called us to be fully trained? When you are fully trained, you're like your master. When you're fully trained, when you're fully equipped, you become like Jesus. Let me, let me share with you one of my favorite passages of Scripture about this. It's, it's from Hebrews chapter 13, 20 through 21. This is a great passage of Scripture, and it's a promise. It's a prayer, but it's also a promise. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, listen to this, equip you, there's the same Greek word, equip you for what? Everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his blood that he's bought us with, he is able to equip us with everything good to do his will. He's able to equip us with everything good to do his will. Now hear the words from Paul. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly all that we can ask or think, I think some translations say all that we can imagine, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So is that your prayer? That God would do something unexplainable, something unimaginable? Now, now think about this. Just because we've done a 50-day spiritual journey and tomorrow we end, doesn't mean it's over. Did that. It's done. I can move on with my life. This journey to look more and more like Jesus is, is just the beginning. So we have a whole lifetime ahead of us to grow more and more like Jesus. We have great days ahead of us as a church to be, to be growing, to be more like Christ. And so I think that one of the things that I want to leave you with as we conclude the sermon series is this. If there's one thing that, that, you, that would be ringing in your ears, if, if you don't get anything of this past 50 days, here's what I want you to hear. The more you look at Jesus the more you begin to look like Jesus. The more you look at him, the more you begin to look like him. So may we be a people that are always looking at Jesus so that we can begin to look more like Jesus so that he receives the glory alone. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.
Father, we want to be a people that spends our time looking at Jesus so that we can look more like Jesus. And we know, Father, that you have planned before the foundation of the world to conform us to the image of Christ. And that your goal and your purpose for us is to look more and more, to be transformed more and more to look like Jesus. So thank you, Holy Spirit, that you do that in our lives. Thank you that we're not left to our own devices, but he that began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Thank you for starting the work, doing the work, and the promise to complete the work. We want to know who we are in Christ, that we are chosen, we are loved, we are accepted by the Father. We are purchased, we are forgiven, we are righteous in the Son, and we are indwelt, empowered, and sanctified by the Spirit. And Lord, because of who we are, it gives us motivation to live lives of obedience. And so, Father, we want to live lives of obedience with head, heart, and hands to your glory. And Lord, we may not exactly know what that would look like in a disciple-making small group, but Lord, we want to be part of a, a movement where there's scripture saturation, where we're, we're not just knowing the word for information, but it's leading to transformation and obedience. Father, we want to be part of a movement where we can love one another, encourage one another, and pray for one another, and do life on life together, and that there's no, there's no loneliness or disconnection, but that we're together as a people, and that we're, that we're experiencing unity and fellowship. And Lord, we want to be missional. We don't want to just exist for ourselves, but we want to reach out beyond the four walls of the church, and we want to engage a lost culture, and we want to pray for lost people, and we want to see people get saved, and we want to serve with our hands out into the community. And Father, we want to see new leaders being birthed all the time. We want to have an equipping center and a greenhouse for equipping and reproducing leaders. And, and so, Lord, this is some, some big things that we're asking for. Lord, I think these are big things to ask for. These are, these are things that I know need to happen in the life of our church, but I can't force them to happen. You have to do this in the power of your spirit. And so, Father, I, I, I claim that prayer that Paul prayed, that, that you're able to do more than we can ask or imagine according to your power that's at work within us to the glory of Christ in the church. Would you do something amazingly beyond what we can imagine? Father, would you birth something in us that can only be explained by, by the power of God? Lord, we want to be humble we want to be ready. We want to be willing. We want to be moldable. You're the potter. We're the clay. We're just, we're just a lump of clay in your hands. We want you to full fashion us and form us because you are our sovereign God. And so we look to you as our great king. We look to you as our great God. We want to just be pliable in your hands. And so, Father, whatever you're calling us to do and be as a church, we want to say yes, Lord, before you even tell us what it is. We want to have a posture of obedience, a posture of humility. Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be. Draw us together tonight to give testimony of your working in our lives, Lord. Thank you for working in our lives, and thank you that we can give testimony. We have the freedom, that we have an open forum for us just to come and share what you're doing, that we can rejoice together, that we can laugh together, we can cry together, we can celebrate together, we can, we can weep together as a church family because you're a good God, and you've called us together as a family. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.